There he is. Hello, lads. <laughs> you all right, mate? How about you? Yes, I'm good, good buddy. Yeah, I'm not sure you've met Nick, have you? Nick, Sam, Sam, Nick. No, no. heard, nice heard all about you, Sam. Oh, that sounds bad. <laughs> <laughs> How are you guys doing? You both well? Yes, yeah. yourself, yeah. you're all right. I've seen yeah. your face for, well, probably since pre-COVID. Yeah, before times. It's weird, yeah. yeah. Last year, started last year? Yeah, a long time yeah, ago. Probably. Everything feels like a decade ago, though, before COVID, so it's, yeah. It really does, doesn't it? But but also, like, it feels like the years has gone like that. I don't know, You feel. I mean, yeah. memories from the summer, which could have been last week. That's a very strange turn of events, isn't it? Nick, ready? Good. Yeah. Doesn't seem like it. Sorry, I'm moving about, getting comfy. <laughs> sure. It's a long right. process. Oh, shit, I didn't put... Forget it. What? I was going to get Chelsea on TV in front of me. Do it. Well, yeah, but I need to run a HDMI cable through that. It'll take me about two minutes. Can I do that? It's up to you, mate. Sam, how much time have you got? Oh, loads of time. Don't worry. No yeah. pressure. Okay, then. All right. Give me two minutes. We're, we're starting at half five for you, Nick. So this is up to you. <laughs> Whatever. It's fine. Anyway. It's Welcome to another episode of the Wembley Way podcast. Tonight, Tom is your host with Nick and guest Sam Dunn for the best and worst of the week, Ben the journalist, Newcastle's form, five things in the EFL, Arsenal versus Spurs, England Youth Watch, power rankings, the listeners' questions and the bundle giveaway draw. Welcome to uh, Series 1, Episode 8 of the Wembley Bay Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Nick. Hello. And our Newcastle fan guest, Sam Dunn. Hello. Yeah, so uh, Sam, uh, I take it you listen to the pod. Uh, a, a huge fan, dying to get on. Yeah, a long-time <laughs> fan, long-time fan uh, of the last of seven seven-week seven yeah. pod, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Die-hard fan. Yeah, I mean, it's the call-up, isn't it? It's what every big fan dreams of. Absolutely, and also a big fan of Newcastle United. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll come on to that, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> the less said. Yes, yeah. yeah. Less excited about that at the moment. No, that we will do. We'll be discussing uh, Newcastle's form later in the pod. But as we always do, we'll start our, uh, our running order with this week's best and worsts. Nick, what's your best of the week? Um... <sighs> My sins, my best of the week is going to be Spurs, Kane, but mainly Bale. Um, obviously, Kane, Kane's goal was unbelievable and Kane's performance. The Spurs' performance was very good against Palace uh, on Sunday evening. Um, but I think Bale has made a real difference um, since that second half of the West Ham match, really. Um, since then, Spurs have gone to beat Burnley, Fulham and Palace. Obviously, Fulham was a little bit controversial, but the other two quite convincing. 
not the toughest of games, but it seems like they're out of the rut and the the style of play has almost changed a little bit, um, probably somewhat due to Bale's abilities and, and, and the way he plays, um, obviously playing off the right. I mean, his, his timing and ability to arrive in the box at the right time is, is spot on anyway. We, we know that. He's, it's almost um, Cristiano Ronaldo-esque. He must have learned from, I think, Madrid. He's adapted his game, whereas Bale used to be this sort of powerful, quick winger and then cutting in from the right and, and shooting, whereas now off the ball, we can see that improvement of arriving in the box uh, with the right timing. And obviously he's got the final product, whether it's at his feet or in the, or in the air to, um, to score goals, but, but also his, um, his ability to switch to play and, and play longer passes. I think yep. it's obviously shouldn't be underestimated anyway, but, but also I don't think Spurs really have that other than Kane. Um, and it, what that's done is it stretched teams, especially the teams like Burnley, Fulham and Palace, where they are very compact. If you can get someone playing high up in the left, like Son does, and you've got Bale coming to collect the ball on the right and switching to play. It gives the other team something to think about. Um, so I, my best is going to go um, to Bale um, for his, his comeback. Um, and I know you may have dismissed it, I guess, but it, it does it does give the beg the question of it, maybe he wasn't fit enough, maybe he wasn't trying hard enough, maybe he wasn't sharp enough, but only he and Jose will know that. But it definitely begs the question of would it have helped Spurs' position? I'm not saying he would have come come in earlier on the season, done what he's done now, but maybe giving him some more appearances might have helped him get fitter earlier. Might have prevented other indish, uh, injuries to Spurs. Um, there's no doubt his ability to get in the, on the end of things in the box would have grabbed Spurs a couple of goals um, sort of late on in games, I guess. And and who knows, the results could have could have improved, especially during during the recent rut. So um, I, I, no one will know. Uh, if whether whether it would have changed things, but um, his performance at the moment suggests that it might have done. Yeah, there's a video doing arounds of him just constantly switching the play to Reguilon, and obviously yeah. it's a great player to be switching to in space. He then yeah, just exactly. crosses it in. It's uh, yeah, yeah, it's beautiful yesterday. Not only in, as you say the striking ability, but also his you know, distributions, passing. Uh, it's insane. Uh, really is. Okay, uh, Sam, your best of the week. I'm going to go for Scott Parker. Uh, you guys have mentioned him on the pod recently. To take Fulham away to Liverpool, the reigning champions, and get a win is pretty impressive, really. They've come from 10 points from safety to now be level with Brighton on points. It's just quite a turnaround for a manager that has, up until now, just a few, uh, up until this season, just a handful of games of experience in the Premier League. Um, And, yeah, it's just a complete turnaround, which is just astonishing given how far Fulham were away from, from safety just a couple of months ago. It's a testament to sort of his man management ability and, and how he can inspire the players to really pull together that they've been able to, to sort of turn things around, really. There's been some good signings in there, but actually you look at some of the quotes of the players in recent weeks and it's just, you know, they, you can see that they're all fully behind him, all pulling in the same direction, which, you know, you compare to other teams around the bottom like Newcastle, you can't say the same for them. So it feels like Fulham are on their way to safety, even though they are still uh, still you know, languishing down down in the relegation zone. It feels like they have such momentum behind them now that actually it's a matter of time before they pull themselves clear. But to go away to Liverpool, go to Anfield and get a result is just astonishing for a team that is in the bottom three. Um, and it's really positive for, I think, British football in general to see a young manager like Scott Parker being given the time to work through challenges. It was, I mean, you can't shy away from the fact that they weren't very good at the start of the season. Um, but being given the time to develop, given the time to uh, 
adapt and change and try things uh, has has just allowed them to come through a bit stronger and, and I guess has really built this sense of camaraderie and the ability to pull together for him. Uh, Anguissa said, uh, Scott Parker knows how to make the players feel good, to feel confident. He always finds the words to get through to us. If he tells you it's possible, you believe it's possible. Harrison Reed said, the manager breathed, breathed belief into us. He talked about coming here and winning, not getting a point, coming here and winning. And you know, all of this just shows how behind the manager they are. So Scott Parker is my best of the week for getting that result at Liverpool and, and starting to drag Fulham out, out of the relegation zone. Yeah, I mean, they often a lot of there's a lot of uh, snatch and grabs going on at the moment at Anfield, but this certainly wasn't one of them. They uh, outplayed Liverpool for a lot of that game. Um, I watched it, um, which was a rarity. Was it? Was it the first, was it the first early kickoff? Uh, two o'clock. Two yeah. o'clock. Yeah, I, I watched it and uh, I was heavily enjoyed it. Um, I was rooting for uh, Scotty then. Um, I, but I imagine, Sam, you weren't, as you said, uh, Fulham's successes uh, are really sinking you into this relegation battle. Mm. Just to say as well, those, those quotes, I think you probably expect a quote like that from Harrison Reid, who sort of seems like a player who almost epitomises how Parker plays and, and almost epitomises Parker in that sort of uh, try-hard attitude um, and desire. But And Greaser had a tough time at Fulham, obviously going there, not settling, had to go out on loan and then come back this this season. Hasn't always been in the team this season. Has been swapped out with Lamina at times as well. I think was at, was at Anfield. So to see to hear someone like that giving a positive quote um, like, like the one you, you mentioned about Park just just shows that he's, he has got everyone on board, not just his favourite ten or eleven players. So it's definitely uh, definitely commendable. It yeah, almost feels like their favourites to, to favourites to stay up now, doesn't it? Even though, like you said, they're still in the bottom three. It's, it's so strange. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and like you guys have said, the, the it wasn't just that they got the result; it was the manner in which they got the result. They went there with, you know, full of belief. They played in a confident manner, uh, and Liverpool were, you know, pretty much there for the taking, really. But yeah, it's um, it's great to see. Uh, and you know, compare those comments from those players towards their manager with someone like Matt Ritchie coming out and calling Bruce a coward. It's night and day, isn't it? So, but I'm sure we'll come to that in a moment. Yeah, I think we will. I'm sure we will. Okay, Nick, what's your worst of the week? Um, there's a few to choose from here, actually. Um, I was I was thinking about the VAR decision in the in the Leicester game uh, when Lewis Dunk took down Vardy. Uh, I just couldn't believe that anyone watching that wouldn't think it's a penalty. Um, I, I'm not quite sure how how you can look at that a couple of times in the replay and think that. Um, I don't think they're necessarily deciding that he did get the ball. I think maybe they're saying we can't tell whether he did or not. But I still think that's a ridiculous decision and outcome. It's a penalty all day long. Right? Um, but that's not my worst of the week. Um, my worst of the week is uh, Granite Xhaka. Um, uh, for anyone who hasn't seen, this is for his mistake leading to Burnley's equaliser against Arsenal. Um, so Leno played the pass to, uh, out of the back to, to Xhaka, who was sort of, um, facing his own goal on the edge of the box. Um, he took, took a couple of touches, tried to play a pass sort of mid sort of waist height to uh, to Louise and he obviously didn't realise that um, Chris Wood was standing in the way uh, and it hit Chris Wood and the midriff and, and uh, flew into the into the goal. Um, so a few people have blamed Arteta for that style of play and, and sort of dicking around with it at the back. I don't really like that argument. Um, it wasn't a bad position to be playing around the back. I do agree sometimes it's a bit excessive, but I don't think it was, it was excessive in, in this example. I think it was quite fine and natural to play from the back there. Um, people having to go at Leno for playing that pass 
for me again it was a good pass in terms of execution it was it was the right weight was um, it was it to it, his it, left foot though i thought it was to um uh, it was Jacques's left foot which meant he had to take the touch to then get it on his right to shift it across but uh, i don't know maybe no, that's really harsh no I, i'll come on i'll come on to that um sorry i, I think the, i think the pass was fine in terms of execution and it, and it wasn't a bad choice of pass either um for me if Jacques had anything about him he could have played that that pass first time with his yeah. right foot to David Luiz, who is sort of in the right centre back area. Um, he wasn't quick enough in the mind, and/or he wasn't confident enough on his right on his weaker foot on his right foot. Either way, neither of them are good enough. Uh, neither of those outcomes are good enough. Um, you know, on your point, Tom. Yeah, the ball was probably slightly to the right. He probably could have taken a touch with either foot actually, but. In terms of that first time pass, he wouldn't have been able to do that. His left foot would have had to be in right foot, right. and and obviously he wasn't confident enough to play that. Um, as a add on to that, since the start of 2016-17, Jack has now made eight errors leading to opposition goals, which is more than any other player since that time frame. Um, which is surprising, given he's a midfielder, because usually if a midfielder makes an error, it's, you've got defence behind, you've got a goalkeeper behind that, so. The fact that he's higher than any any sort of central defender or goalkeeper on that list is quite quite astonishing, really. And um, mm. I think it just about sums him up. It, he's been good for Arteta so far, but it, it's no good if you're if you're half decent in most games and then you're giving away errors like that. It just it really it really isn't good enough. It probably epitomises Arsenal. One thing I loved about that scenario was uh, when the ball bounced in off Chris Woods, the fact that he wheeled away, giving the <laughs> finger wag, yeah. as finger if wag. he's just scored oh, no. an absolute no. worldie. And yeah. He yeah. had no idea what, what was going on there, but yeah. you've got to claim that's it. My, that's my third worst of the week, the celebration. <laughs> Absolutely. Fully deserved as well. All right, Sammy, what's your worst of the week? I don't think there's any guesses uh, for what my worst of the week's going to be. As a Newcastle fan, it's got to be Steve Bruce. Um what a terrible week for the club and it, it all stems from Steve Bruce the you know comparing what Scott Parker is achieving at Fulham to what Steve Bruce is achieving at Newcastle um, it's a little bit disappointing to say the least but this comes the result that we had against West Brom where we clearly went out and I say we as a Newcastle fan Newcastle clearly went there to just avoid defeat um, so at least in one regard, we're being consistent throughout the hierarchy of the club with our lack of ambition. Um, it's just disappointing to see that we set up to get a draw against West Brom, who leak goals and who can't score goals. And, you know, we come away from that with Steve Bruce claiming that, you know, a point was was a good result. That alone would be enough for me to nominate Steve Bruce. <laughs> but given the week that we've had, whereby... He's been squaring up to uh, players in the training ground. Uh, he's completely lost the dressing room. So Steve uh, Bruce he... is running around the training ground, squaring up at play. What's the what, what happened? Tell me yeah. what happened. So this comes off the back of the game against Wolves during uh, during the week, in which there were there was a substitution change uh, in which Matt Ritchie was sent on with right. instructions for the players. I mean, he might as well have gone on with a scroll. The instructions were so long. It required about three or four different players to change position. Uh, and so there was quite a significant change. We then ended up conceding from a set piece. Um, I think it was a set piece or maybe a break. But either way, we ended up conceding. Uh, and off the back of that result in the post-match press conference, Steve Bruce blamed a number of the players for that for that goal. Mm. Um, he also blamed Jolinton for missing uh, towards the end of the game. So he ended up blaming about three or four different players uh, for 
us coming away without a win. And we were winning up until the point that we conceded that goal. From that, there was a training ground altercation uh, in which uh, Matt Ritchie called Steve Bruce a coward. <laughs> um, and uh, exactly what was said, it seems to be the subject of a little bit of dispute. But essentially, I think there's a collective view that it's never Steve Bruce's fault. He never seems to take the blame for this. Uh, and coming out to the media to blame his own players for that, uh, for conceding that goal, just clearly didn't land very well. Um, and Matt Ritchie and Steve Bruce had this altercation in the training ground in which, you know, Steve Bruce claimed, you know, after all I've done for you, <laughs> Matt Ritchie comes out and says, you've done F all for me, uh, you're a coward. Steve Bruce then squares up to him, starts shoving him and pushing him. And it's worth saying Matt Ritchie reportedly did nothing at this point. He was just, you know, I think he, he understood if he put his hands on the manager, then that was his time at Newcastle over. So it was just there being shoved around by Steve Bruce uh, to the point where, yeah, it then ha they had to be separated. Steve, uh, Matt Ritchie then had to come out and apologise to Steve Bruce despite apparently not doing much wrong in that scenario and then this you know this is then overshadowed the preparations for this game against West Brom which was a vital match for us to get some points and try and separate ourselves away from the relegation zone but has instead just continued to roll into the weekend we've come away from a pretty winnable game with a point uh, and we are right down in the mix now for relegation uh, and people have often excused Steve Bruce's lack of tactical nous for his ability to at least be able to, you know, galvanise a dressing room and, and get the players behind him. But if he's out there criticising players for conceding goals with, you know, I'd say lack of evidence, really, to then fighting with them in the training ground, <laughs> you've got to argue that maybe one of the benefits or few benefits of having Steve Bruce as manager actually is no longer a benefit. If he's lost the dressing room and, you know, he's fighting senior key players like Matt Ritchie, then it's really difficult to see what he can still galvanise, uh, who he can still galvanise to actually perform for him. And, and that was shown at the weekend with a pretty lacklustre performance from everyone. Um, so, yeah, that, that's kind of a summary of Newcastle in a week. I mean, it's never dull as a Newcastle fan. It's just a little bit depressing at the moment. Yeah, probably one of the most most depressing worst of the weeks there. Um, but yeah, sorry, no, no, I don't, a valid don't, one. I don't think it's going to get any better. I don't think it's going to get any better. <laughs> no, fully justified uh, and a great inclusion. And that's it for our best and worst of the week. Um, next up, we've actually got a, a phone in, as we like to call them, from uh, Jack Phillips, who had on the podcast before, where he reviews Liverpool versus Fulham. All right, everyone. Jack Phillips here. Reviewing Liverpool's sixth, yep, sixth home defeat in a row today. Uh, fell 1-0 to Fulham. Another tough day at the office for the Reds. Um, but I don't really want to talk about Liverpool too much initially. I want to talk about Fulham and Scott Parker because I thought they were brilliant today. Um, a lot of teams have come to Liverpool and sort of been tough to beat, you know, sat deep, low block. Fulham come to Anfield today and they were the better team. They played the better football. Um, they were braver, more creative in their attacking play, had a number of good chances. They got the goal eventually, just on the break of half-time through Mauro Lamina, a player that Liverpool were linked with at one point in time a few years ago. Mo Salah was dispossessed at the edge of the box from a Fulham corner and Lamina smashed it into the bottom left-hand corner. It wasn't a high XG chance, but he 
put it in the one place where Alisson couldn't get to. And then it was, you know, usual day at the office. Liverpool 1-0 down. You know, we huffed and puffed a little bit, but sort of it, it was no Hurricane Katrina. It was more sort of a light, breezy afternoon. Um, and Fulham dealt with it with relative ease. Sadio Mane had a good chance, hit the post. But other than that, it's disappointing again. But today, for me, the praise needs to go to Scott Parker. A guy who, you know, I've taken the mickey out of. We all have. I think he's one of the brightest British coaches in football right now and he's doing a hell of a job. And I believe that his tactics are having a real impact on Fulham's points and the points that they're accumulating and he deserves tremendous credit. Here's to next week. hope we're not playing at home. So otherwise it will be lucky number seven. But yeah, another bad day at the office for the Reds. Cheers. Jack Phillips there with uh, yeah his review on the sixth straight loss for the champions at home this season. Also, it's, this pod's turned into a bit of a Scott Parker loving. Anyway, it's time for Ben, the journalist. Thanks, Tom. Ben Allison here with another report for the Wembley Way podcast. Now, before we speak to my very special guest I'm with today, I just wanted to give a shout out to all of my followers who have been enjoying the previous interviews. It really means a lot. Now, it hasn't all been positive. Um, I mean, you're always going to get your critics, aren't you? Some people have said I'm the worst reporter they've ever heard. Send me hate mail. What I'm telling you now, you're wasting your time, because I don't take any notice of it whatsoever. Although, at Benjamin Crawley is listening. Great app, by the way. If you DM me another picture of Bungle with my face poorly photoshopped over the top again, I will find you. And I will. Contact Twitter complaints department, because... I'm not having that, quite frankly. It's not on. Oh, anyway, now I've got that out of the way, I'm delighted to be joined with today the legend, Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. It's not every day you get to meet one of your heroes. <laughs> it's funny, I, I, I knew Zlatan back in school. Yeah, you know Zlatan? Well, I knew a Zlatan, but obviously it wasn't the Zlatan, it wasn't you. How you know Zlatan? Is the first time you meet him on no, it was a, another person called Zlatan. It was just this short foreign exchange student with chubby funster-like features. In fact, that's what we called him. There's only one Zlatan. Oh, you just trying to wind me up? Yeah. Right, well, it's working. Anything else you want to get off your chest before we carry on? I am Zlatan. Yes, I know. And why do you keep talking about yourself in the third person? It's in my DNA. Oh, that literally makes no sense. I'm not the typical... <laughs> Swedish guy, but I put Sweden on the map, so... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I know what you're doing, and you're, make, you're making a joke, and, you know, fair enough. But, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not into my geography, but I'm pretty sure you didn't put Sweden on the map. That's German. I think Sweden is known for more things than just Zlatan. ABBA, yeah? I'm thinking IKEA. I'm thinking of Greta Thunberg. And not in that way. But yeah, I'm sure a lot of people would agree with me. A lot of people or you? No, I'm just saying there's other alternatives. But you seem to know better than me. Alright, so you disagree, I take it. Who would you say then? You're writing about it. I'm writing about it, it's a podcast. But still you're talking about it. Alright, so we just get back to football then? And you know better football than me? Oh, no, but... So why are you talking? Because this is my job, this is what I do. Are you a journalist or a camera guy? I'm a journalist, or a journalist, as Tom likes to say. So why are you holding the camera? Oh, for fun. You should have a camera again, no? I'm multitasking, I'm a one-man band. 
They didn't supply me with a cameraman. So he's low budget? Yes, he's low budget. There's no budget. It's zero budget. Look, I'll stick to the podcast, you stick to scoring goals. You want to learn how to score? You come to my school. I'll learn you how to score. Yeah, I'll learn you how to speak English first. I am Zlatan. Oh, and I'm done. Fuck's sake, it's like talking to fucking Groot. I am Benjamin, and I'm going home. So, um... so Sammy boy, we've discussed Newcastle at length already, but uh, there's a lot more to talk about. Um, I think the first question I want to pose to you, you know, what is the issue of Mike Ashley then? I mean, in short, really, um, why do you, uh, uh, Newcastle fans hate him so much? And um, where are we currently at with with him and the potential selling of the club? Uh, yeah, what's what's the current status? Yeah, I, I like how you mentioned uh, that I need to try and keep this short because <laughs> the list goes on. <laughs> so, um, yeah, where do you begin with Mike Ashley? I mean, there, there are so many things that he's done. It's hard to keep up with uh, that have irritated the fan base from renaming the ground sports director at St. James's Park and sports director Arena to having Wonga as our shirt sponsor, two relegations, it goes on and on. There's been some terrible appointments in that time and it's made the club a laughing stock. Uh, it's always been a bit of a circus at Newcastle, but you've always been able to usually get away with it because we've at least been entertaining. The fans have been on board most of the time. Um, and so you can brush that aside, provided that there's a little bit of ambition. Um, and, you know, times weren't perfect before Mike Ashley. There was a lot of uh, upheaval, particularly from the point of Sir Bobby Robson being removed. Uh, we had quite a high turnover of managers. But there was a bit of promise when Mike Ashley first joined and he did. He consolidated the club's debts. He uh, started to sign some some players to support the recently appointed uh, Sam Allardyce as manager um, and so there was a bit of hope when he first joined but it turned pretty sour pretty quickly the the treatment of club legends has been well documented um, and it's one of a number of ways in which the club have really distanced itself or driven a wedge between itself and the fan base so for example Keegan uh, won two million pounds in damages from the club over his treatment um, and that was from, you know, signing players without Keegan's knowledge. Cisco on £50,000 a week, five-year contract. He played nine times and then had, had his contract terminated early. Uh, Ignacio Gonzalez, again, signed without Keegan's knowledge as a favour for two South American agents. That was just the start of it, really. And then from that point onwards, it just got worse and worse. And the club has really been sinking new depths during this period. Uh, just a couple of things that they've done, which kind of go to prove that point. The club were fined for allowing betting the betting company Fun Eighty Eight to sponsor children's shirts. <laughs> Homeless Gutierrez right. uh, won a disability discrimination lawsuit against the club after he was released following mm. the fourteen fifteen season, having just beat cancer. And, and Gutierrez's yeah. mother even spoke out during the tribunal to say that Newcastle's role in that episode had made her consider suicide. I mean, it, it just goes on and on and on. It's unbelievable. But this is this is all driving a wedge between the club and the fan base it doesn't really feel like the fans club anymore and that is you know one aspect of it the other aspect is that there's just chronic underinvestment and lack of ambition at the club that has just continued and continued and and probably won't end until the point that mike ashley leaves because he's made absolutely clear that he wants to sell the club um, and for whatever reason, that's just not happened. A lot of fans place the blame at Ashley's door for not being a willing seller. But, you know, with the Saudi takeover, 
that fell through in the summer, he was very much a willing seller then. But he has no interest in investing his personal fortune in the club before he, he sells up shop. So this chronic underinvestment has led to Benitez leaving, for example. And, and that was, a again, for many fans, a, a nail in the coffin for, for their support of the club. But all of this has led to a point where fans are just largely apathetic now towards the club. And when you compare that to where we were before Mike Ashley joined, you know, often regarded as some of the most passionate fans in the country, some of the most engaged. Mm -hmm. It's fair to say that they'll still be the most passionate and they, they will love their club forever. They just now largely <laughs> will pay little to no regard to, to results until Mike Ashley leaves or will, will feel like their club has been taken away from them, which is quite a sad position to be in. Uh, and so we're at this point where there is... There's not a huge amount of hope, really, um, and, and that's reflected really by the results that come through every week from, you know, we've already mentioned Steve Bruce's performance as manager, but we look at how the, the team are performing on the pitch. We see how the hierarchy are guiding the club, and, and there's very little hope for things changing unless somebody comes in and buys the club. It's really interesting hearing uh, a Newcastle's fans' opinions on, on Mike Ashley and, and that, because if I'm honest with you, I know that he's a bad owner and he gets criticised a lot, but some of the things that you mentioned there probably aren't knowledge to that many people, even inside football. Um, so it's, it's really eye-opening to, to hear and see some of the things. I, I, I knew about the Jonas Gutierrez thing, obviously didn't know about the extremities with, with what his mum said in the tribunal. I know that he did score a goal to like to keep you up, I think, wasn't it? And then, yeah. and then, and then get told by text later on that he wasn't required anymore. Exactly. Um, but yeah, some of those things are, are pretty damning. I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's a little bit depressing, isn't it? Especially when you're considering sort of the proposed takeover in the summer. Is, is it Saudi owners who? Are, were, yeah, so it was so, yeah. Um, the PIF, the the Public Investment Fund uh, of Saudi Arabia. Um, yeah, they. So that was an interesting episode, and and I think fans were were not as split as you'd expect them to be with a Saudi takeover. You'd, you know, expect, <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, that's what some, I was going to say. Yeah. yeah you'd expect Just... some to, you know, want to distance themselves from Saudi, but I think it's got to the stage where people are so desperate for Mike Ashley to leave. And actually, you know, there was a lot leveled at Newcastle fans doors over the summer. You know, should we boycott if the Saudi takeover happens? What can, what pressure can we apply to the Saudis if they do take over? When, mm. you know, I think a lot of Newcastle fans feel like this spotlight hasn't been on them during the Mike Ashley episode, but now very much is. And it's uh, feeling like, you know, many other clubs have had an opportunity like Manchester City, like PSG, and, and this could be Newcastle. And finally, we'd be free from someone who actively disengages from the club to, to having somebody who would actively engage in the club. That being said, I think Newcastle fans accept that the Saudis, you know, might not be uh, necessarily the cleanest in terms of owners, and and therefore there are you know serious complications there of interest. But people are so desperate to get rid of Mike Ashby that they're almost willing to have anyone at this stage. Which, whether rightly or wrongly, that 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 is largely the view held by the majority of Newcastle fans. It's quite telling, isn't it? It is. Yeah. So obviously that's uh, Ashley and the, and the current state of the club. Looking at this season then, or I guess Steve Bruce's time um, at the club, it started quite well, didn't it? He started putting results out of the hat. And um, I think um, an, an initial uh, 
uh, what's the word, um, negative feeling around uh, the Newcastle fans from what I could see about uh, Steve Bruce's appointment diminished it was with with, uh, with some good results at the beginning of his tenure. Am I right yeah, in saying that? Yeah, I think that's, that's fair to say. I'm not sure Newcastle fans really ever you know, got over the fact that he was a former <laughs> former Sunderland manager, but but more importantly, he sure. was he was not Benitez. Um so I think he could have, you know, rocketed us up the league and, and people still would have felt like they he was, you know, not necessarily the appointment they would want after Benitez or that they would just still like Benitez there. So yes, he did have he had some good results. Um and and in fairness to him, we finished the season pretty strongly last year, um, in terms of position that we ended up in but I think any Newcastle fan would tell you that watching the games last year we were not good and the results really massed over the performances some of the stats speak for themselves I, I don't have them to hand but you can see where we were in terms of rankings for possession for shots on target chances created we were pretty low down and you watch the games and I think you know, it's hard to gauge luck, isn't it? But we were very lucky. Um, and we came away with results, which in any other situation we wouldn't normally have got. Whether you could be lucky for an entire season, though, is, you know, that that's a question mark. And, and you know, so therefore you should really give some credit to uh, to Bruce. But we were lucky in some games that we got results in. Um, but we finished well. And, you know, points at the end of the season is what matters most. The actual performances themselves were pretty turgid we had really really low possession we didn't play very expansive football and we just ground out results which is kind of what we did under Benitez although with Benitez you actually felt like we had a plan with Bruce it felt like we were getting away with it a little bit and this season we've really been found out I think it's fair to say that the luck's run out and actually we're pretty easy to play against we have very little defensive structure uh, and therefore that was one thing that Benitez had put into place. We were very well disciplined. Everyone knew their position. And while it wasn't entertaining to watch, you knew that we could grind out results and we could occasionally sneak a result against a top team. But with Bruce, we rely on luck every game. And when it doesn't come off, we lose or we draw against teams that we really you know, ought to be beating. Now, that being said, I think there was still a renewed sense of optimism at the start of the season. Uh, we, we brought in some good players uh, and filled some positions that we had neglected for far too long and so there was the hope amongst Newcastle fans that something different could happen this season it hasn't quite materialised and if anything we're sort of regressing from where we were last year so uh, he won over maybe some fans last year but it's not been quite the turnaround that we had hoped and and with the signings this year it's not been the kick on that we we hoped it would be. Uh, Let's assume they're in the Premier League (laughs) what do Newcastle need to do to progress? Yeah, it's not an easy question to answer, really. Um, I think it's a big assumption to to say they'll be in the Premier League, and I, I don't honestly think we will be. Um, that being said, Steve Bruce is clearly not the man to take us forward. He needs replacing. But again, that's easier said than done. He was signed on a long contract, and he uh, he won't leave of his own will. <laughs> and so there has to be a payout there. Mike Ashley's not really willing to do a payout. And if we can scrape 17th each season... Mike Ashley is more than happy with that. However, mm. uh, the flip side of it is that who would want to take the job? It's not a long-term project for any manager. And so while the fans would love Eddie Howe, there's no reason why Eddie Howe would join because you can, you survive this season and then next season you have a lack of investment, a lack of support. So it's hard to understand who would want to take this job now. That being said, 
things might change over the summer. The main thing that needs to happen for Newcastle to progress is for Mike Ashley to leave. The club needs some sort of ambition. It needs a fresh start. At the moment, it's purely a vessel which is being used to advertise Sports Direct. Uh, and the, the heart and soul of the club has gone. The fans not being in the stadium was the last element of that heart and soul. When the fans go back, that'd be great. You know, that will that'll poss- possibly help. But I think, if anything, it's taken the pressure off the players because you go to St. James's Park now, the fans are much more quiet than they were 10 years ago. And that's no criticism of the fans at all. You watch that football for so many years and you think, why, why am I doing this to myself? But if the fans can get re-engaged, if they can have a manager they can get behind and love, then it really makes such a difference. You see what a difference it made with Benitez. It was the first time in so many years that the fans really felt united and it felt like our club again. But that takes quite a special manager, given the situation the club is in. So the, the main thing that has to change is Mike Ashley has to leave. Whether there's a willing buyer, that's yet to be seen. But after that, you know, who knows? <laughs> um, and if we still have Mike Ashley, then we still need to replace Steve Bruce. And that will give us at least a fighting chance of staying up next season, if we stay up this season. Yeah. Nick, any more to add? No, only, only in the short term. Um, with Graham Jones coming in, coming in uh, in December, it, it actually looked quite positive, and 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 it almost the style of play did actually change. It was it was a lot more um, it was a lot more attacking on the front foot, pressing a lot higher up. Um, I was quite impressed with that, and I, and I I do genuinely think that um, obviously longer term is, and Ashley issues aside, that if if Wilson hadn't got injured, uh, it was against Southampton, wasn't it, in, in that sort of three two game, if he hadn't got injured, I, I do think that there'll be a, a lot more positivity around the place. I think that Newcastle will have a much better chance of staying up. But at the moment, you just wonder where the goals are coming from. Uh, and that was the same. It was a problem last season. And then obviously Wilson's come in and actually he's probably when one of the most, one of the recent signings has actually hit the ground running and mm. done well for Newcastle. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think, uh, yeah, it's a massive, massive blow to your chance of staying up with Wilson being out, um, which, which actually brings me on to another thought that was, the recruitment hasn't been good in recent years. Um, if, if you're if you're not investing large amounts, and and you can criticise Ashley for that, but other owners don't invest huge amounts either, but still manage to do better. I think Southampton are a club who they spend quite a lot, but they actually get a lot back in. So, um, and you look at where they are and and how they are playing and their identity is a lot better. But yeah, some of the signings I think you've brought in have been just a waste of money at times. I mean, the Joe Linton one doesn't look like a great Still bit of business. Still scored at Spurs, like though, didn't they? Uh, in the 1-0 win. That's good. <laughs> Only <laughs> goal. Good not great to sell on value, <laughs> though, yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I don't really know who's, who's accountable or responsible for that, I suppose. Is that Ashley? Is that his advisor? Is that the manager at the time? It's, it's quite an interesting one because you had a period of time when um, Pardew was manager where the signings were just coming off. For the, the, French, the French like, League, wasn't um, it? Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, Cisse, Bar, Goodbye, like these, these players. Were, I mean, was it kept that year you came fifth? Or? Right. Yeah. Cisse's goal at the bridge. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's a strange one. But. Yeah, it is. And and actually, this is, um, yeah, the, the, the transfer policy has been um, a subject to debate amongst Newcastle fans for ages because only in recent times have we had a positive net spend. But, but you look at who that positive net spend has been about been contributed to or attributed to and it's mm. it's Joel Linton for 40 million pounds who has been mm. absolutely appalling I don't think many uh British based football fans could have told you who Joel Linton was before he signed not that you should just sign people on their names but it he was supposedly supposed to come in as a number nine for us and has just not delivered but 
the the underinvestment in the playing staff is is well documented but then the underinvestment in the local youth academy in the stadium in the facilities mike ashley has sold off land around the stadium which means that we can't now expand the stadium um nice. there was a there was a picture a couple of summers ago in which it was a, a really hot day at the training ground and the the players were pictured in a uh, blow up paddling pool cooling down after the training yeah. game and and you know whether that was just them having a bit of laugh or not it's been you know grappled on by Newcastle fans as a point to prove that there aren't good cool down facilities this was a training ground that in the 90s was state of the art the, the um in the 90s and early noughties the stadium was state of the art and it's fallen into disrepair in that time but you could understand perhaps or make an argument for the lack of investment if it had resulted in you know the club's debts being cleared but our debt has increased in that time zero pounds has been spent by sports direct on advertising at the stadium so he he is mike ashley getting away with free advertising there and the club is actually paying sports direct eight million over the last five years to support the um the the club store which is just nuts but that aside mike ashley aside going back to the playing staff uh we did have a, a great policy that worked for a couple of years you're exactly right nick we had Players coming in like Ben Arthur, Kabai, Dembar, who were exciting. Alan Pardew found a good system to work with them. We qualified for Europe. The very next season, we signed Vernon Anita and Vernon Anita alone. And we had all of these extra <laughs> Europa League games, <laughs> but with only one extra playing staff. Um, no Messi either, is he? Oh, no, no, he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't great. <laughs> um, but he was committed, at least. Um, and, uh, yeah, following that, it, it was a real struggle. And we, we almost got relegated that season. So uh there was just a lot of weird decisions made and the wrong uh managers were given funding steve mclaren was given uh funding for winaldum and a few other players some of whom hit the ground others didn't but it was hard to tell because steve mclaren wasn't a very successful manager likewise steve bruce has been given a lot of investment again it's investment but for the wrong manager and so it's hard to tell if the players just aren't particularly good or it's the tactics being used or it's the man management from Steve Bruce. But I do think that we have one of the strongest squads we've had in recent years uh, this season. And so that's why it's a little bit disappointing to see where we are because finally we have a proven striker in Callum Wilson. We have exciting forward players like Almiron and St. Maxman. Yeah. There are still areas of weakness like the centre of midfield, which haven't been addressed. Uh, but we have players there and we should be kicking on. So there's there are shoots of optimism when you look at the playing squad, but you know, we need somebody who can lead them and, and take the club forward, which we don't really have in Steve Bruce. And on the Graham Jones point, uh, I mean, his arrival at Newcastle was hilarious. It was like we'd signed Messi. There was uh, there was fanfare <laughs> photo shoots. He had uh, interviews with NUFC TV. Uh, I mean, it was basically like the Alan Shearer signing back in the 90s uh, for an assistant head coach. And it, it was interesting to see how bigged up it was by the club. And you know, we've had some okay results since then. Our, our playing style changed for a little bit, but I do think Newcastle fans are a little bit split on how much influence a head coach can have. But, you know, maybe it goes to show that there really was no tactical nails without him being there. And actually, just the appointment of one key member of staff can make a big difference. Who, who knows without being there? But, you know, every little helps at the moment. If Steve Bruce needs another five assistant head coaches, then, then let's get them in play because at the moment he, I think he's struggling on his own. 
Oh, you nearly ended it there positively. Uh, but, Almost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right then. Well, yes, yeah, so that's uh, that's Sam on Newcastle's form. Uh, certainly learned a few things there myself. Um, so now it's a good one. Uh, it's that time of the week. It's five things in the EFL. Five things in the EFL. Five things in the EFL. Five things. You smash it. It's just like watching Brazil. That was what was sung at Oakwell the year Barnsley won promotion to the Premier League for the one and only time in 1996-97. And Tykes fans, including myself, are dreaming that the unthinkable of promotion to the promised land could be happening once again. We beat Birmingham 1-0 at home at the weekend to make it seven straight league wins in the championship. The first time that such a winning run has happened in our club's history. Opposition teams are struggling to cope with our direct approach, high press, and never say die attitude. Please God, let it happen. Performance of the week. Brewers still bubbling. Burton Albion 2, Peterborough United 1. Now you may recall a few weeks back, Burton got my first ever performance of the week when they were bottom of League 1 and beat top of the table Hull. Well they've only gone and done it again. They beat current table toppers Peterborough United. Now despite Peterborough being top, this result shouldn't be seen as a shock and it shows how far Burton have come since Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank returned to the club. Back when they beat Hull, Burton were 5 points off safety in League 1. However, since then they have won 5 out of 6 and are now 4 points clear of the drop zone. Rico return. Coventry City are close to seeing a deal to return home to the Rico Arena from next season. And since leaving Highfield Road in 2005 for the Rico, the Sky Blues have faced a lot of off-the-field issues surrounding their stadium. So they spent the 13-14 season playing home games at Northampton Sixfield Stadium um, following rows over rent issues. A Premiership Rugby Club Wasp bought the Rico Arena in 2015. And following disagreements uh, with the Wasp owners, Coventry have spent the past two seasons playing home games at Birmingham St Andrews. Uh, the Sky Blues have actually had an impressive home form this season, despite not actually being at home, and they'll be hoping this transfers to the Rico Arena from next season. Sky High Canaries So unless they collapse dramatically, it's looking like Norwich uh, will be playing in the Premier League again next season after a one-year absence. They beat Luton 3-0 at home at the weekend and moved 10 points clear at the summit of the Championship. Uh, the Canaries are relentless at the moment, having won 7 games in a row, They've scored 16 times in the process and kept 5 clean sheets in those 7 games. With a trio of Timo Puki, Emiliano Buendia and Todd Cantwell, they had the most creative and potent attack in the league, so it's no surprise to see where they are. Also a special mention for on loan Spurs midfielder Ollie Skip, who is an unsung hero for the team this season. He has helped protect the defence in this run of clean sheets and allows the attack the freedom to do what they do. Uh, Skip deserves a chance to play in the Premier League next season, whether that's with Spurs or on loan again at Norwich. One to watch, Tyrese Campbell. So here's the thing, you can't actually watch him at the moment because he's out injured, but Stoke City striker Tyrese Campbell looks the real deal. Son of 90s Premier League legend Kevin, Tyrese Campbell has similar traits to Daniel Sturridge in my opinion. He's a natural born goal scorer and a poacher. He likes to pass the ball into the corners of the net 
and when he's one-on-one -on -one with the keeper or has the ball at his feet inside the box, you expect him to score. Campbell has been injured for two-thirds of the season and Stoke have missed him badly. In his 16 appearances at the start of the season, he scored five times and set up six. Stoke were looking good for a promotion bid before his injury. I can definitely see Campbell being a Premier League striker in the near future. Five things in the EFL, five things in the EFL, five things. You definitely smashed it. Five things in the EFL. Uh, yeah, Brazilian Barnsley, Nick. Well... If they do put, uh, push for the Premier League and uh, come up this year, we might have to get a new person for uh, for uh, five things in the EFL because Sheld certainly won't be watching the EFL anymore. He'll be watching the Premier League. So Absolutely. I think he's think told you that, hasn't he, off offline? He, so. he really has. He literally said he won't <laughs> do it anymore if, uh, if Barnsley come up because he'll stop watching the EFL, um, but, which, uh, which is a shame because we need someone because last week I think I said that uh, Omar Roberts had signed from Reading to Bayern Munich and actually it was Omar Richards. So uh, there we go. just pr proves that we do need an EFL expert and not, not either of us doing it. That's assuming our listeners actually care about the EFL as well. well that's true. We should, because... we should ditch it then, if not. <laughs> oh, all right, look, if Barnsley get promoted, we're ditching it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Unless you are an EFL expert, please, please email Sam, in. No, no, Newcastle gets relegated. Sam's <laughs> There we go. Sam, brilliant, yeah. That works for me. All right, then. Uh, I've got the running order. That was quite good. Oh, yeah. Match Spotlight, of course. It's Match Spotlight. Um, this week, I, I, we could not um, preview the North London derby. It's Arsenal versus Spurs at the Emirates. Uh, Nick, let's start with you. Um, this has be yeah, a bit of a conversational one, um, and I'll, I'll chime in as well. Yeah, I'm sure you'll have a view on this. Um, Arsenal not won against Spurs since December, December 2018. Uh, won two in the last 12 against Spurs, so... Straight away, uh, it's a big task for Arsenal. Um, Arsenal are difficult to break down when they're not making silly errors like Jack did at the weekend. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how Spurs attack or newfound attack uh, fares against Arsenal. Probably the, the biggest test of the of the recent fixtures. Um, and it'd be interesting to see how Arsenal's energy and attack, so Saka, Odegaard, Pepe, Aubameyang, fare against sort of the, the central area of Spurs we've seen. Um, that's been a little bit vulnerable at times, to say the least, over recent months. Um, but but I do think that Arsenal will need to be at their best uh, and most disciplined to keep out Kane and Co. Um, so at the moment, I can't see anything other than a, than a Spurs win, to be honest. Sammy, any thoughts? Yeah, I can only echo what Nick said. I think it's I think it's surely a Spurs win with seeing what form Kane and, and Bale are in and together. It's you know, it, they look pretty unrelenting at the moment. So I can only see a Spurs win. Um, yep. And, you know, if we see any more uh, dramatics from Arsenal at the back, then it's going to be pretty easy for Spurs to score. Yeah, I mean, there's a few things. Um, I said a few weeks back in the pod, if Kane and Son could get back into form, um, dis disregarding Bow, and it's actually Bow and Son. Son still played well last night, but obviously Bow and Kane, uh, stole the headlines and those three if they can continue to play like this they've done the last three games two and a half games perhaps um yeah that's the best front three in the league um you could have said liverpool what last season but you know they're they're a ghost of the side they 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 once were um i think if we can play with the same intensity as we did in the first half away at fulham if we 
were as clinical as we were in the second half versus Palace, then it should be a Spurs win. They do always raise their game. It's a derby in the day. If form goes out the window, that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, of course, um, I think I remember the game of Bamiyang scored from outside the box, outrageous goal. And I think we went into that, the favourites. And I remember, I, think, I can't remember the score, but we lost. Scored and it's, Yeah. And, um, it was around Christmas, wasn't it? That's right, because I watched it in the, in the pub back mm, at home. Yeah. So I'm back to Essex to watch it. And there's those Arsenal fans in there. It's a fucking nightmare. Um, I think Dias would have header for early doors. Anyway, um, yeah, they always do raise the game as a North London derby will you know, do to any club. Um, but they are going away um, for their European tie on Thursday. We are at home. We were actually both drawn away, but um, we can't both play in London at the same time because of like fans clashing, even though there's no fans in the stadium. Uh, that that rule still applies and UEFA haven't changed the rule. So they had to carry on uh, with the ruling. Um, and because they won the FA Cup, that was supposed to be a good thing that they kept their tie, whereas we had to change ours, which is probably benefiting us because we then stay at home. We get the second leg away, but it's it's, it's a grab, final last words, but uh, that sh we should be all right with that. Um, and yeah, so hopefully that helps Spurs as well. So I do think it's Spurs win. Let's do a quick fire... Um, predictions nick what's your prediction for the game uh, i'm going to go with a 2-1 spurs win sam i was going to take that but i can't just keep on copying nick's answers so i'll go for a 3-1 <laughs> spurs win 2-0 spurs 2-0 spurs um that was match spotlight north london derby edition uh i don't know why i said that but okay yes it's in there right tell us what, what's happening Paid back his 80 million. So it is Monday the 8th of March and Nick is doing the podcast, but also watching Chelsea uh, <laughs> on his phone. Nick, what's just happened? Uh, so Marcus Alonso's broke down the left wing and he's cut the ball back. It's a little bit messy. I think it might have taken a deflection off the defender and then hit Havertz or Havertz. You're like Chris Kamara. <laughs> yeah, hopefully better. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know, Jeff. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Kyle Havertz has scored. It's 1-0 in the 32nd minute. So, uh, yeah, the replay is showing now, so I can talk you through it if you want. Marcus Alonso gets played Be in brief. by hudson Doy down the left, cuts the ball back, deflects off a defender, and then into Havertz's path, and a great right-footed finish, arriving in the box at his best, Havertz, that we haven't seen yet. Oh, no, I lie. It's an own goal. Is it an own goal? Um, he is Chris Kamara. <laughs> own goal. I don't know, Jeff. I don't know, Jeff. Yeah, it's an own goal. I thought you were going to say it's no goal, which would have been Carl beautiful. Assist, so. so it is a goal and that. it's a Carl Havertz assist. Yeah, it's, it's, okay, yeah. thanks Chris Kamara there at uh, the bridge tonight for Chelsea Everton. It's hard to right. mix that punditry job, so yeah. I thought you did all right until you said own goal. Uh, well, you can see it on the first replay, but... Sure. Yeah, anyway. It's England Youth Watch. Tonight, we're discussing Aston Villa's number four, a 23-year-old ex-England under-21 central defender, Esri Konza. Nicky, what, what are your thoughts? Um, so, first of all, he's got a great footballing background in terms of his upbringing and where he's come from. Um, so, he moved from Villa, uh, sorry, to Villa from Brentford, um, which obviously we know that they've got players and, and can develop players to, to play at a higher level, as we've seen with, with Ben Rama and Ollie Watkins. Um, before that, he was at Charlton, and Charlton have got, always got a good history of developing uh, good young players. His he's grassroots level um, is at a club called Senrab, 
Um, and uh, some some listeners may know about Semrab, but um, yeah. if, if you don't, Semrab is a team based in London, um, and uh, it actually stands for Barnes backwards because it's where John Barnes was uh, was was um, created as a youngster. Indeed, um, I believe. Um, and uh, you might have heard of them before. A lot of players have been have, been, have started there in their, in their young careers and, and made it as uh, professional football players. Not all of them, but here are some: uh, John Terry, Bobby Zamora. Ledley King, Jermaine Defoe, Sol Campbell, Hugo Egiog, Lee Boya, Hawkinchesky. So the list goes on. Um, so obviously got a, a great reputation for developing um, very young players who go on to do well in the, in the modern game. So um, for a starters, there's a very good footballing background to, to build off of uh, being at Semrab as youngster and those two clubs I mentioned. Um, in terms of his play at, um, at Aston Villa so far this season, he reads the play very well. Um, he steps in on the front foot. Um, a modern day defender, I think you could probably call it. Um, mm. Sort of in in the olden days, as you'd say, um, they tend to back off and, and be a bit uh, passive. But he, he likes to step out, read the play, um, very calm head on the ball. So when he gets it, he he, uh, he relaxes, uh, he's calm with it, and, and tends to play the right pass. And he's very good in both boxes in the air. Um, he scored two goals this season, but actually, having watched more of Villa's games, he probably could have had a number more um, where he's. Um, uh, been very unlucky for hitting the bar or something like that, or, or good save from the goalkeeper. So, for me, um, there's been talk about him in England recently. Um, I know it's not technically a youth watch because he is 23, but um, it could be a surprise. I think, I think 23 is like the cut-off age. 23 yeah, I think so. I think Just, so. Yeah. Um, but for me, it could be a surprise inclusion. Um, it might be harsh to include him ahead of Mings, um, given Mings' previous experience of England, but. Yeah, certainly playing at the, at the level required to to be to have a squad place at the moment. It's just a case of whether you gamble with him or pick someone who's been in the squad before. Yeah, he's been rising in the uh, England power rankings, which is up next on episode eight of the Wembley, uh, Wembley Way podcast. Um, but yeah, Kostner, um, twenty four appearances this year, eleven clean sheets. Uh, certainly been a great season for him and getting better by the week. Sam, what are your thoughts? Yeah, and just echoing what Nick said, really around his mentality, he gave a really interesting interview to uh, Paul Doyle at the Guardian back in January in which he was saying that one of the hardest things for him to have to learn uh, is actually overcoming uh, being punished for mistakes. He said that it's in the Championship you can often get away with it but actually when you come to the Premier League it's pretty unforgiving and so being able to cope with that mentally has been one of the more challenging aspects of learning the Premier League but aside from that he realised that you can be punished for off the ball uh, mental slips as well as you know dithering on the ball as well so he cited a game against Watford in which Troy Deeney scored and his positioning wasn't great and and he realised that actually he needed to up his game in terms of his off ball um, uh, movement and positioning and that's really helped him this season so uh, yeah it's, it's impressive to see him kick on but also I mean in this interview alone seeing how open he is and how self-analytical and critical he is um, is really impressive to see. Uh, so, yeah, certainly one for the future, if not now. Absolutely. Yeah, that's it. That's England Youth Watch. <laughs> Continuing with our uh, with the England theme, uh, next, we have the England Power Rankings. This is where we discuss the English pool of players and each week, um, based on their performances in uh, their domestic leagues, uh, see where they sit, whether they're making South, uh, Southgate's plane or not. 
I always find it funny. I say Southgate's plane. I think our first few games are at Wembley. So it's not really a plane, is it? Uh, getting the train down from... Uh, uh, all our games are at Wembley. Yeah, where, is, where are they based again? Sheffield, isn't it? The, F, like the, FA, the FA base is the Burnley. Midlands. Just getting the train then on Southgate's train or not on Southgate's train. Okay. Um, firstly, though, we have a question. Um, it's, it's England uh, senior squad related. And so we like to chuck them in um, the power rankings feature. Josh Gray at Joshua Gray 01 asks, where will England finish in the Euros and which teams are favourites in your opinion? So I want where England will finish and one favourite, one, uh, you know, who do you think at, is actually going to win it? Or if England don't win it, who do you think will do so? Uh, Sam, we'll start with you. So, yeah, I, I can see England um, making it pretty far, really. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we got to, uh, say, at least the quarters or the semis. It really depends on how the other groupings uh, play out. But we have the strength and depth, which would rival, I think, even the better nations. Uh, and so coming off the back of this sort of season where the players are going to be pretty tired, you'd imagine, it depends on what sort of break they obviously have before the tournament starts, having the ability to rotate and, and rotate quality into the team is going to make a huge difference. Uh, and so, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we reached, you know, up to the semis. If we can push for the finals, then, you know, who knows? I, I'm hopeful, but um, if we tally up against Belgium or France in the semis, then I think we might struggle, and I would probably pit France as the favourites. Um, but on our day, I, I, I think we can beat anyone in Europe. Um, on the global scale, it might be a bit of a push, but uh, there are obviously good teams in there, Germany, Belgium, France, and I think we've, we've got to be in contention when you look at the quality of, uh, of our squad but we have some real world-class players in there, Kane, Sterling, uh, and to name but two. So I think we'll go far. Whether we can reach the final or not, I'm not sure, but I, we should at least be aiming semis, if not higher. So I'm going to say we'll finish third. We'll win the, win the third-place playoff um, to be, be, you know, that's the Newcastle fan of me being pessimistic, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we went a little bit further. If we don't go all the way, then I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I highly suspect France will probably come away with the, the trophy. Yeah, I share your optimism. Um, the only worry I have is we all, we're all imagining this, this very talented crop of players producing the, the performances that they do for their clubs, but we're yet to see it. We've seen it in bursts, perhaps, but we're yet to see, for example, Harry Kane dropping deep like he does for Spurs and, and uh, passing uh, over the top to a, a running Sterling or a Rashford or a Foden. And it's only when I see that will I get really excited. Because I think when if, if, they, start, if they are clicking uh, like um, they potentially could, uh, then we could go all the way. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges for Southgate over the next couple of months is actually working out what his best team is, what his best starting lineup is. Yeah. And that's where those friendlies would have come into play. So if they're not going to be possible, then that, that's going to be a real downside for us. Um, but yeah, this is, there is the added pressure this year. I think with the World Cup, there wasn't much expectation, but that helped the players really drive forward without, you know, the, the nation on their backs. I think this time around, it's a little bit different and there's a sense of expectation, which might also come into play as well. So if there will be fans back in the stadium, then I think that'll only go to boost the players. But if the fans Certainly. aren't back, then they'll be on social media and seeing 
the pressure cranking up. So I think there's, there's, it's going to be a really interesting tournament for so many reasons. But um, yeah, seeing how the players adapt and cope, particularly off the back of such a successful World Cup, is going to be going to play a part. Yeah, I agree with that. Nicky, what are your thoughts? Uh, I'll, I'll chip in quickly. I, I think uh, I think semi-finals. Um, I think I, I completely agree with you in terms of we, we're imagining these these great players in, in the Premier League, and it's all going to click together. And actually, we haven't really we haven't seen that. But also, it, even in the World Cup under Southgate, um, it was almost an entirely different team. Uh, I think you'd probably say Kane, Sterling in the back three, and maybe Pickford are probably the only ones who are going to stay. And other than that, the um, Henderson maybe. But actually, a lot of the exciting players around them. Uh, actually, nine out of the eleven. Um, <laughs> no, no. A lot of the exciting players around them are sort of newly tested uh, or untested on the England front. So it'd be interesting to see how they get on. I think semi-finals, um, obviously we've said France um, are going to be big favourites. I think Belgium are always strong. But I think the one to watch is, um, if I'm stealing Shell's headline on one to watch, um, is probably going to be um, Spain. I think they've got some very good youngsters. Um, the league is not in the best position at the moment in terms of its quality and, and, and the players in it. But um, if you remember recently, Spain beat Germany 5-0 and Germany are always strong and Germany had a good team out that day. So I think there's some surprise packages in there in the Spain team, the young Spain team, um, that, that could be a surprise package for, for the Euros. But yeah, I, I'm optimistic with England. I think semi-finals and there's, there's always a chance, but I'm not going to count on it. Yeah, it's a good question, Josh. It's uh, probably the first time we've previewed the Euros and discussing uh, what could happen, um, where we could where we could finish. Um, so no, I enjoyed that one. Um, Nick, um, let's not forget it is the uh, England power rankings. Who are your movers and shakers this week? Uh, I haven't got loads, but I'd say um, Shaw is just continuing to, to impress. Um, I hate to be that guy sort of praises a good performance after a defender scores, because obviously that's what I'm doing, but um, but uh, has, has been playing consistently well and obviously chipped in with a goal against, uh, against um, City at the weekend. Um, Dean Henderson will be a very interesting one to watch because uh, De Gea has been given leave to go and visit his new uh, baby um, that his wife's given birth to in Spain. Mm. Um, and I think uh, Solskjaer has basically said to Henderson, you're in goal for the next six games and let's see what happens. So um, the two so far, he's done very well. He actually started the move for Shaw's goal by throwing out um, a good decision and good throw. Um, and has put in some, some solid performances. So these, these next four games that it is now could uh, could define this season for him. Could define his Euros and, and potentially his career if he's if he's putting in very good displays or or the opposite, of making massive errors. So mm-hmm. uh, really interesting to watch. And I think um, on on the up after the two games so far. Um, on the down, just a couple on this one as well. Um, Rashford's been struggling a lot recently. Um, hasn't been playing his best, struggled again um, uh, this week and uh, and limped off um, limped off with an injury as well. So it doesn't look too great for him. Um, Trent, you could say dropped, you could say rested against Fulham. Um, but again, after a string of, uh, of, of not so great performances, probably uh, perhaps on the down as well. So uh, those, those are my moves and shakers this week. Um, but do look out at the power rankings for any other moves. Yeah, um, check the um, latest power rankings at the website, thewembleyway.com. Okay, now for our final feature. It's the listeners' questions. Ladies and gentlemen, England will be playing for, for, fucking two. 
we're going to start with Kieran Gow at Kieran G88, who asks two part question. Firstly, if the season finishes now, who's your player of the year? And secondly, who has been your biggest player disappointment this season? Someone who's expecting higher things of, but has been rubbish. Nick, any thoughts on this one? Um, over the year, for me, I've got four on my short list. I've got Rice, Grealish, Fernandez, and Diaz. How can you not put Harry Kane in there? I mean, I'd call me biased, but my God. He's on he's on top ace. He's got the most assists, and he's one behind Salah for the most goals. Yeah, yeah. I'd, yeah, okay. Fair enough. He's, I'm, I've got a five-man short list now, then. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're asking me the question, though, and you're chipping in to get the answer. <laughs> Nick's on the way to get his Yeah, so my five players I've got on my list are Kane, Rice, Grealish, uh, Bruno Fernandes and Ruben Diaz. Um, I think um, if, the, if the season was paused now or ended now and City mm. awarded the league title, I think that is uh, a large part down to Ruben Diaz. Um, so I think it would go for him. I, I don't think you can underestimate what Fernandez has done um, since joining. So over a year now, um, his stats are, are are ridiculous. But but United haven't achieved anything yet. So um, I think it would be too early to, to call it. I think if they make top two, United, I think he's a great shout. Grealish has obviously been awesome. And again, looking at West, where West Ham are, if they make if they make top four, even top six, again largely down well, a huge part down to Rice and I think you've got you've got to put him in there as well um, my disappointment uh, is Timo Werner um, I think he, he came with high hopes um, and I could forgive him if he if he arrived and he wasn't scoring or, or his, his stats weren't great but he was putting in some good performances or things like that but for me so far and, and this, this could all change uh, happens with a lot of players after six months or a year in England and, and then they, they t- turn it around but he doesn't look like um a particularly good footballer technically at the moment. Uh, he doesn't seem to be able to do anything on the move. So when the ball comes to him, he has to stop to control it and then and then carry on with what he was wanting to do rather than uh, take the ball on the move. So for me, he's been my big, biggest disappointment, but maybe maybe slightly biased because I'm a Chelsea fan and expected bigger things. Reminds me actually, I remember um, talk of Chelsea's strikers uh, and Drogba's first, is it six months? I'm not sure. I mean, his first goal after a long period of that one was a miscontrol into the bottom yeah, corner, wasn't Arsenal, it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I remember that kind of was his, the catalyst for him and he kind of turned it around. I think before that, there was certainly some uh, dissatisfied fans, Chelsea fans um, in his performances. So who, you never know. He might miscontrol one into the top corner and uh, yeah, turn into one of your top, top uh, strikers of all time, just like That's Didier. Right. I hope so. Yeah, well, he needs something, doesn't he? Um, uh, next question, we're going to do one each. Um, sorry, we're going to, we're going to turn... Uh, sorry, do it again. Sorry, we're going to... Oh, no, my oven's beeping. Oven's beeping? Good, I'll fuck that up anyway, so be my guest. Let me, I can ask Sam, it's all right. I'm going to ask you, Sam. So next question, uh, Ben Marsh at uh, Wit Marsh Pugs. O-I-T, Wit Marsh Pugs. Um, when Stephen Gerrard inevitably succeeds Jurgen Klopp, will we emulate the success he's had at Rangers? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Thank um, you, Sam. Onwards to the next question. <laughs> I, I mean, what what was great to see again? It was similar situations with Scott Parker. It was that even though Gerrard didn't win trophies in his first you know, his first stint at Rangers, they gave him time and that has allowed him to grow and, and really understand the game, develop his own way of playing uh, and get the, get the team on board. I think it'd be 
too early for him to move to a club the size of Liverpool, obviously. I'm not, not saying that Jurgen Klopp would go at any point soon, but um, he would need more time to develop. And uh, considering how Lampard did at Chelsea, sometimes I think the the urge for players to return to their former clubs uh, is often too great to turn down, which is really understandable, but that opportunity will come along in the future. Uh, and yeah, I, I actually think that Lampard took the, the Chelsea job too early. He should have waited a bit longer and understand uh, and basically took the route that uh, Gerard did in, in developing um, his yeah, his profession. And I think that Gerard would be well suited to do the same, just to continue to develop before he takes on such a big role. And whether that means dropping into the championship, getting more experience there, the the pace of the English game is certainly slightly different to the Scottish game. And I think having some experience in the English leagues, perhaps in the EFL, would um, would would help. I think he could be a very successful manager. I think he's got all the attributes to be. Um, he just needs time. And I don't think there's any rush to jump into such a big role. And I think he just needs to spend a little bit more time developing and progressing. But having a title win so early in his managerial career is, is huge, particularly overcoming Celtic, who have just been constantly dominating that league for almost a decade now, uh, is, is such an achievement. So I think he could emulate the success he's had at Rangers, sure, but he will just need, he would need time to develop. And I don't think that he is ready to take on such a big, big challenge yet. But in the future, I, I don't see why not. Yeah, I agree. I think I can imagine him uh, slightly older Stephen Gerrard you can imagine him lifting that trophy the Premier League trophy at Anfield he, he actually has really impressed me um the way he talks he does he speaks with a lot of uh with a lot of power um a lot of um control and there's almost like an aura around him which I didn't yeah. think that doesn't come naturally I don't think that was there with Frank Lampard and uh, yeah you can imagine with as you say a bit more experience under his belt um yeah backing up that uh, personality with more tactical uh, nous and yeah he's a ready-made top top manager in there um so yeah I, I agree with that um time will tell but yeah certainly looking good for the liverpool legend next question uh, benjamin crawley at benjamin crawley great at um he asks going into the last stages of the season what's your top six prediction nick go for it right one man city Two Man United, three Spurs, wow, four Chelsea, five Leicester, six West Ham. So there's a couple of big um, statements in there. So firstly, I'd, I'd say Spurs above Chelsea, Leicester dropping off, but they do that under Brendan Rodgers and they're kind of starting to do that. So that's not necessarily a headline. I'd say West Ham maintaining their form um, is a statement. Um, yeah, explain yourself. Uh, do you think Spurs then are that good and can stay this good uh, for the foreseeable uh, future? Uh, it's a difficult one because obviously, like I said, Spurs' last three games have been, although other teams have slipped up against them, they have been, I suppose, more favourable fixtures and perhaps fixtures that a Mourinho team would like. But um, I, th- I just think with their attacking talent that, that they're going to score go- They're going to score goals. So yesterday, scoring bucket loads of goals. Um so as long as they can can keep out those massive errors at the back, I think that I think they will win a lot of games, um, particularly late on with the sort of amount of pressure that the, the front three will put on other teams. Um, I think Chelsea are playing very well under Tuchel. Um, I mean, we're not conceding any goals basically. So the, as, as long as we carry on doing that, 
we're not going to lose any games and we're going to win quite a lot. The attack's only going to get better and so only going to click more. So um, I, I'm a little bit worried about our end of the season. I think we've got, I can't remember who it is exactly now, but it might be Leicester, Man United, City, some teams like that around, around the last four games of the season. I think maybe Villa as well. Um, so I, I, I'm a little bit worried about that, but we've got a relatively goodish spell from now until the, those last four games. So, um, so I, I think if we carry on the way we are, I think that that we, we'll just make the top four. Um, as you said, Leicester have started to slip. Um, very big win actually against Brighton at the weekend. I thought they were going to slip up in that game after going one behind, um, and did manage to grind out the win. Um, I think Harvey Barnes is a big miss for them. Even when Madison comes back, I think that will obviously help them. But I think Harvey Barnes is a huge miss for them um, in terms of scoring goals and creating goals for them. So I think they'll slip out, um, perhaps. And I, I don't see West Ham changing much in terms of their form and, and the way they're playing. That They've been doing it all season so far. They've coped with a couple of little injuries here and there and, and change of shape as well. So for me, I, I think... I think Everton are good. I think Villa have been playing well. Arsenal, you could argue, could come back into it. But for me, I, I, I think West Ham are, are solid and and, uh, and are, are going to stay there or thereabouts. So for me, I think sixth is probably Everton or, or West Ham. And, and um, Everton just seems to be grinding out their results. Whereas West Ham seems to be seems to be um, winning their points quite quite comfortably at times. So I'm going to go West Ham in sixth. Yeah, European football at the Olympic Stadium, the London Stadium. I always call it Olympic Stadium, don't I? Um, didn't they lose to Astra in like a Europa qualifier a couple of years back? Yeah, did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That would be uh, well, it's fine. That might be fresh the in the memory. You never know well, how they'd be doing now if they were in Europe that season. So you never know, do you? Yeah, I just wanted to have a jibe at West Ham. <clears throat> Last question, and it goes to Sam. Um, Stuart Newman at Stuart underscore Newman asks commentators today were branding John Joe Shelby as a massive underachiever based on his talent. Is that he asked, what are your thoughts on that? And are there any other massive underachievers in PO history that you can think of? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, John Joe Shelby, uh, current Newcastle uh, player as well. So this works. It's a bit of stroke of luck here when we went. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, what coincidence as an underachieving Newcastle player. Um, <laughs> I mean, John Joe Shelby, I mean, is incredibly immobile and you can watch him and it's no surprise that he doesn't perform well week in, week out. But I could go on for a long time talking about John, John Joe Shelby. I think there's... Uh, I mean, just to put this back on Spurs, Roberto Saldado rings a bell. Um he was very good shout. A pretty significant underachiever came with quite a lot of hope. Um, given his he scores a great penalty. Oh, mind, great penalty! But, uh, I think his first like, five goals were pens, and I was like, "Yeah, it's like top goal scorer." And Nick, and Nick at the time, you were like, "Yeah, they're all pens." And I think you're you're we're winning one nil, wasn't it? Uh, like every game, and we're like kind of up there, like top four. And yeah. you were frustrated because uh, we weren't actually generating any chances. But so I was putting him away from the, uh, the spot. I remember the uh, thirty million pounds Shevchenko. That really that was a big one. Yeah. Although he scored a banger against Spurs in the yeah, FA yeah, Cup, yeah. I, was, I, was, I was behind that very goal, thirteenth row, um, and that, yeah, he had his moment, didn't he? I think Torres at Chelsea. Yeah. Although he obviously puts it past, he runs it around the keeper at New Camp, and you win the Champions League. So. Yeah, that, that the gate's any shout for him in London. No, and I, I, he won, I'll, he won, I'll he won give the you the Champions that. League, and he scored the, scored that goal in the New Camp. So. Andy Carroll, Spurs is uh, Andy Carroll at Liverpool. Yes, is a big underachiever. Yeah. For the money as well, yeah. uh, Sergo Revrov, um, a high, one of the biggest <laughs> signings ever. I'm going back now into the in, into the vault of Tottenham Hotspur Football Club, but uh, yeah, you can't forget um, 
it was it was huge uh huge signing for us at the time we're just breaking into european football and yeah did fuck all um i think we leave it there some good underachievers unless nick you have any spring to mind anything else yeah i think i think for his quality um and what he did at other clubs and then came to the premier league and and didn't quite i think he did it at times uh, and obviously won the fa cup with arsenal but um ozil for the quality he had uh in terms of premier league um yeah. should have been a player who, who won the premier league for me um but yeah, there's a few out there. I mean, big signings that have flopped are obviously easy targets, aren't they? But the ones where you look at them and you go, they had they had the quality, but they didn't do didn't do enough with it. Um, for me, for me, that, that that's Ozil, and not necessarily blame on him. I just think it blame on the overall career that he had at Arsenal, I suppose. But um, you should remind me. Oh, go on. No, go oh, on. No, you do that because mine's about Shelby again. So we'll go back to him. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah, no, yeah. So, so underachievers, as you say, doesn't have to be necessarily a big signing. So you talk about talent. Uh, I was obsessed um, with Adele Tarrap. Obviously, um, was a Spurs youngster. Came on for his debut against West Ham. In fact, at um, in the game where um, Stolteri uh, scores to make it four three. He, he's nineteen at the time, Adele, um, and he was one of those players that the other Spurs players would talk about um, to the press about how good he is in training. I think even Harry Redknapp came out at the time saying. Um, but Harry Redknapp was during Adele's stint. Harry Redknapp came out and said, "If we don't make a player of this." guy then we're not doing our job properly well he didn't do his job properly because he didn't become a regular starter um apart from a couple of like outrageous nutmegs um and yeah i used to go and i used to go to Leighton orient on a monday night with my brother to watch just to watch him once he threw his his glove down like to get subbed off right and ben runs <laughs> runs down to the pitch side and goes to the steward oh, i've dropped my glove so we get his glove print off a picture of him stick it in a frame with the glove and, and that's it really we've got a picture of adele's <laughs> nightglove was it you framing um, like crappy memorabilia i did I, so, I, so we saw in the week that you framed emily Moresmo's, the the ladies number one she tennis was a fantastic while. tennis player nicholas you, you framed her signature yeah no we she ran, she, i think she's walked past us at wimbledon yeah. and uh, i was like that's Ms. Moresmo. so i was like yeah get a signature and then when you once you get the signature you're like oh i gotta do something with it you know what i mean you can't have it like in a wallet so I printed up a picture again. Um, there's, there's a theme here. Uh, little Wimbledon ticket alongside as proof, um, if anyone asked. And yeah, a little signature to go with it. You know, one of those like glass frames, not even with a just a glass oh. perch on the wall. Beautiful. Um, so Nick, Nicky, you see, you got a story about um, about John Joe Shelby. Yeah, I do have one more on the achievement. That's Marco Marin came with massive expectations and talent and did nothing at Chelsea whatsoever. Um, uh, but yeah, on Shelby. So he he grew up uh, in Essex, where where we did as well. And me and you at the time actually played in a game against him when he was uh, at Harold um, Harold Hill. And we were Bitterricky Town. He was a psycho, and, uh, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a bit of a nutter. so scary. Um, he was like a man. But, we but weren't men. By far the greatest player on the pitch. Oh yeah, uh, and probably the play- best player we played against. To be fair, ever for Bitterricky and. Um, I remember coming on, I came on as a sub in that game because we had played a game before, strangely. We played for the and, school uh, team that same day and then they rushed yeah. us on at half-time, see? That's it. Ugh. We ended up, so, we drew, didn't we? 1-1. One, one. Uh, no, I think we lost 2-1. Um, with John Joe Shelby <laughs> scoring a corner. As, as he from, does. Directly from a corner. Yeah. Um, but I remember um, coming on and I said to my brother, Any, anyone to look out for? And he said, oh yeah, the board guy in the middle is uh, like, decent. I was like, okay, like he just said he's decent, but that's, that's about it. And uh, I think it was immediately after I came on and um, he went and collected a throw-in. So his teammate from the left threw it onto him into the centre of the field. And I went to press him to try and tackle him and, it, and the ball was sort of bouncing and he 
popped it over my head. And I thought, oh, God, all right. And so I turned around, chased the ball. He popped it back over my head. And then I turned around, okay. And then back over my head again three times. And then just sprayed a crossfield ball. And bearing in mind this time, we're probably like, what, I don't know, 15? Yeah, we weren't like, like 13, really 13, 14? Yeah. But so, yeah, so like not really young, but at the point where like so if someone's doing that, you're, you're, you're taking notice of them. Um, and I, I actually think that was his last game for them or one of his last games before he went to Charlton. Historic moment. Um, so it might have even been me that helped um, scout him because I made him look amazing. I'm about to say, yeah. Uh, and, and then Charlton were like, yeah, we want him. And, uh, and and the rest is history. And he's now underachieving at Newcastle. Yeah, with no mobility, apparently. So that's Rando <laughs> Shelby. Uh... <laughs> All right, brilliant. Uh, that is the listeners' questions. Um, but the episode is not over, is it, Nick? Unfortunately not. <laughs> Don't be like that. So our listeners are dying to hear who has Sorry, won. Sorry, I'm just Chelsea second half. It's just kicked off. I'm just trying to. Well, you need to do. A, you need to do a draw for us, Nick. We've we've printed out all the names in a hat. You're going to dip your hand in, shake it up a little bit, like a, an FA Cup draw, um, and uh, tell us who has won the England retro shirt bundle giveaway. Okay. Go and get um, the hat. Go and get the hear, hat. You can't, can't. You can't hear me. I've got it here. You can't hear oh, me right. shuffling. Uh, the paper, like like they would on the, the lottery where the balls go around. Um, but just imagine it. You know? This is not good podcasting. Let's do a draw and tell them who has won the bundle. Here we go. Here we go. You're got right. One. You can't hear the balls. You're right. No, he's got it. He's it's, got it. Just waiting. I got one. So Nick, tell us who has won the England retro shirt bundle giveaway. Uh, okay, this is a Twitter entrant. And let me do a little drum handle. roll. Hold on. Let me do a drum roll. Hold on. At Ollie Bell 100 is our winner. There you go. There we go. Congratulations, Ollie Bell 100. We had about, uh, um, I think, over 90 entries in the end. Um, and so it's a solid win for Ollie there. Yeah, really good. Uh, Ollie, we will give you a message on Twitter uh, and uh, organise postage and sizes and, and whatnot and details. And absolutely. We'll direct message. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be in touch this week with all that. And that's it for uh, Series 1, Episode 8. Uh, as I always do, with the final word, please subscribe to our podcast feed, whether that's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast or Google Podcasts. Leave us a five-star review. Please keep them coming in. They really help. Share us uh, to your friends on social media. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram now, at The Wembley Way. And finally, remember to check, us, uh, sorry, check out our website rather for previous episodes and the latest England squad power rankings at thewembleyway.com. I've been Tom. I've been Nick. I've been Sam. Nicely done. And we've been the Wembley Way. Good night. Yeah. City Hall. City Hall. City Hall. City Hall.